All right, so I thought we'd have a talk kind of on a general subject about the miracles of Jesus. And I'm using this verse here in 1 John 3.8, destroying the works of the devil. Okay, and, and what does that mean? Okay, so here's the verse in the, the Good News or today's English version. The Son of God appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. Okay, and, or in a more traditional uh, version, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And there are so many verses. I, I had to leave them out just because I want to um, kind of describe a story a little more than just key texting. But so many verses that talk about Jesus coming for the purpose of defeating the devil. Okay, and so kind of want to try to understand what is that referring to. Okay, so what are the works of the devil? Well, I think it was a couple weeks ago when we talked about the temptations. Um, we went back to the tree and we said that is the, the key story that describes what went wrong on planet Earth. Okay, and you remember that this snake, we won't read the whole story here, but the snake said, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? And uh, what a subtle deception that was. Contradiction to God's words, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden. Okay, so it was just a little foot in the door to kind of suggest that uh, God is not respectful of your freedom. Why should God limit you to anything? And he kind of goes overboard. Did he tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Of course, I could eat from every tree except for one. All right, so uh, the point here is this is kind of, uh, these are the methods which is a deception, and ultimately it was a deception about what? It was a deception about God's character. Is God trustworthy? Okay, it was uh, to, to kind of systematically break down who God is, his trustworthiness in her mind. All right, so uh, we're going to, I think in the last half of this year, spend probably most of it on the book of Revelation, but this is such a, a key text, Dr. Tonstead, if some of you know here in the a religion uh, department has written a whole book on Revelation, and he sees uh, this this section here in Revelation 12 as kind of the center, and everything kind of revolves around this uh, cosmic conflict theme, so that the war that broke out in heaven. Okay, and kind of imagine how what do you think? How do you imagine this war? Okay, how did they how did they fight? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who fought back with his angels. But the dragon was defeated, and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out, Okay, and the writer of Revelation just makes it very clear. I'm not going to miss the identity here behind the symbolism. That ancient serpent, I mean, doesn't that bring us back to the tree? Named the devil, or Satan, that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. And so the, the war in heaven, the word here, Greek word for war is polemos. Okay, and we can hear that in a word like polemics, okay, which is the art of uh, argumentation. And so this is, uh, I think we could make a good case that um, uh, really this was not uh, fought with lightning bolts and tanks and things like that, things like that. But this was more of a, uh, kind of like the battle we saw at the tree. It was more a deception, kind of like we'd see in a political campaign where you have two candidates that are kind of mudslinging. Okay, well, this is one that is mudslinging, that is telling lies uh, about God. So we're going to try to get behind a little bit what the issue was there. And I read this a few weeks ago also, but here in Revelation, we get a better idea about what is the devil up to. 
Okay, this beast coming up from the sea, the dragon gave the beast his own power. Okay, the dragon, that's the devil. It opened its mouth in slander against God, misrepresenting his name. And last year we talked quite a bit about this, that name in the Bible is not just the name of someone. Okay, it encompasses more than that. It's the, it's the person, it's the character of the individual. Okay, so what this beast is up to is misrepresenting God's character and... Again, that's what we, exactly what we see at the tree. Okay, so uh, Satan is a liar, and Jesus pretty much identifies him as such. In John 8, where he told the Pharisees, you are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, it's kind of interesting. What uh, murders would you assign to Satan? That he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And I like the version that say the father of the lie. Okay, but this is in the context here of Jesus telling people right here in John 8 that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, so we have Satan who is the father of lies. And again, we're reminded about the lies um, that kind of uh, ruined our planet. Okay, a long time ago, and in that context, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the truth, I think, is the truth that God is not, as Satan has claimed that he is. The truth is that God is just like Jesus in character. And I can just testify for myself, that was, that was what got me all excited about um, reading the Bible and all of that. It was the truth that Father, Son are one in heart, mind, and character. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Uh, that truth, I think, is incredibly liberating if you've grown up under a false conception of God to come to see that, no, he's, he is just like Jesus in character. So um, I, when I watched the movie Inception some time ago, these words just uh, were riveting for me. Okay, that an idea, could we say a lie, is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious. The smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. And is it possible that we have, um, for most of uh, human history, believed a lie about God, really bought it hook, line, and sinker, and that that has changed everything about the way we view the world? I mean, I think it just if you look at the Old Testament, what do you see the people doing all through the Old Testament? It's, it's entirely an appeasement model. The paganism is always, you have to, lots of flowing blood, you've got to appease the angry gods. Okay, so... The lie that God is perhaps a vengeful, severe tyrant. Okay, so I'll, I'll read some quotes here. And some of this comes from, uh, well, some of you will recognize uh, perhaps the wording, but I think it's perhaps a, a distinct emphasis of, um, of uh, this institution that from the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself. Okay, what are those attributes? As arbitrary. Okay. Anytime that I hear God described as arbitrary in any way, that's a big red flag to me. I, I know of nothing that God has asked us to do that is in any way arbitrary. Okay, that's an attribute of the prince of evil himself. Severe, 
Okay, is God ever pictured as being severe, as unforgiving? Okay, so why does he do that? Well, that God might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Okay, and just uh, one more quote, very similar. Satan has ascribed to God all the evils to which the flesh is heir. He has represented him as a God who delights in the sufferings of his creatures, who is revengeful and implacable. It was Satan who originated the doctrine of eternal torment as a punishment for sin. That's an interesting idea. Because in this way, he could lead men into infidelity and rebellion. Had there been a few atheists that had been turned away from God by the concept of a God who tortures forever and an eternally burning hell? Um, I, think, I, think this, uh, uh, I think certainly has turned many against God. To distract souls and dethrone the human reason. Heaven, looking down and seeing the delusions into which men were led, knew that a divine instructor must come to earth. Men in ignorance and moral darkness must have light, spiritual light, for the world knew not God, and he must be revealed to their understanding. He must be revealed not to be this way. Truth looked down from heaven and saw not the reflection of her image, for dense clouds of moral darkness and gloom enveloped the world, and the Lord Jesus alone was able to roll back the clouds, for he was the light of the world. By his presence, he could dissipate the gloomy shadow that Satan had cast between man and God. Darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the people. It's a spiritual darkness. Through the accumulated misrepresentation of the enemy, many were so deceived that they worshipped a false god clothed with the attributes of the satanic character. Okay, so the, the deception really, um, we, we said a couple weeks ago, but what, god, what Satan really wants is to be worshipped. even asked Jesus to worship him. Okay, and so he twists our, tries to twist our picture of God and to lead us to worship God, who is the polar opposite of the real God. Okay, so have we believed any lies? And um, I could show you a lot of quotes here because I like to collect these. George Carlin, the comedian who died some time ago, um, said this, and it may sound ridiculous to us, but uh, do we ever describe things in this way or deep down suggest they might be this way? Okay, this was his picture, certainly an atheist. Religion has actually convinced people that there is an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these 10 things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever until the end of time, but he loves you. Hey, do we ever suggest that, um, you know, God... He wants to marry us. We have that marriage metaphor described so often in the Bible. Um, but do we suggest that if we reject God's offer of marriage, if we reject eternal life, what does God do to us? Is it like that marriage proposal? Okay, where if the woman hesitates, she says no, uh, what does the other individual do? Okay, is, is, is it the reality that we either accept God's offer or he will kill us? or worse yet, torture us for all of eternity. And what does that do to our sense of freedom and our desire to actually be with God in the first place? So uh, we need to, I think, spend some time, and we will, talking about hell and the destruction of the wicked and all of that. It's, it's a really important um, uh, issue. So how do you defeat lies? And I'm going to just give you an example here, just to talk about how dangerous lies can be. 
Uh, let's say we have two third-year medical students, and uh, maybe uh, Jack and Kate. Choose a couple good names from Lost. Okay. <laughs> so uh, let's say that both Jack and Kate uh, want to go into dermatology, which is very competitive. And so, you know, they have good grades, and they're spending a lot of time in dermatology. Maybe Kate is doing some research at the VA hospital in dermatology. And um, so Jack begins to get a little nervous that maybe, you know, there aren't that many physicians here at Loma Linda, and uh, maybe he better do something to improve his chances. And so, uh, you know, he comes up with an idea, and he tells one of the dermatology residents that, um, you know, I'm, I'm keep this confidential, but I'm kind of concerned about Kate. Uh, she, she really needs some structure. Uh, when she's at the VA doing research, um, you know, she spends her whole time on Facebook and on the Internet, and she's really not accomplishing anything. And uh, please don't tell the attending. But, uh, I, you know, I'm concerned about her. Can you somehow help to provide a little more structure with her VA research experience? Now, does something like that get around? Do residents talk? Does it eventually reach maybe someone very important for choosing someone for a residency position? Okay, that's a pretty, uh, pretty calculated lie. Now, here's my question for you. Let's say you're Kate, and you are aware that it has become kind of common knowledge in the dermatology department that you're kind of a slack off. Okay, when you're doing research, you're actually spending all of your time um, chatting on Facebook or whatever. Uh, what would you do to dispel the lie? What, what would you do? Give me some possibilities. What's that? Okay, and then you go tell the dermatology attending, you know what, I deactivated my Facebook account. Uh, with that, uh, boy, great. Um, you know, I don't know that, uh, well, maybe that would be something, but I'm not sure that that would satisfy the uh, accusation. Any other suggestion? Pray about it, okay. Sure. You could publish, a, okay, you publish a paper that showed you actually were, we're doing something. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, talk to the residents and be like, hey, is this what you've seen in my behavior? I'm just wondering where this came from. Is this something that's, you know, cohesive with your picture of me? Okay. Yeah, so you could talk, uh, maybe you've worked with someone at the VA who could actually vouch for you and say that, no, that's not true. I think, uh, I think that would be something. Now, let's just imagine that, uh, let's say that we make Kate omnipotent. Okay, so she has all power. Uh, what what would you do now with all power? You're in Kate's position. Okay, I heard someone say squash Jack. <laughs> but seriously, what would you do with all power? Yeah, you could eliminate Jack. That's true. You know, it could be a bus. No one would ever know, right? What if you even had the ability? You know, you could um, eliminate Jack and you could erase the memory of the elimination in everyone's mind. No one, no one even knew Jack. He never existed. Or you could go back and you could even make it uh, Jack was never born. I mean, you know, you could just use your power in that way. Are there any problems doing that? Okay. Yeah, you could manipulate the, the residency application. I guess use your power to make sure that you got the spot. And obviously, I'm making parallels here with how God dealt with the rebellion, but uh, don't we sometimes suggest, you know, why didn't God just eliminate Satan when he rebelled? Well, again, how would you feel? You're an angel. You're watching what's happening. What happened to Lucifer? God eliminated him. 
Okay, does that strike fear or love in your heart about God? Maybe Satan was right. Okay, so just eliminating the adversary uh, was not a way to, to solve the problem. Um, so the other suggestion is, well, you can, you can say it's not true. Maybe you bring in a resident to say it's not true. Uh, but these are mainly claims. Okay, do we always believe claims? You know, when, when Bill Clinton years ago said, I did not have sex with that woman, that was a claim. Okay, now, for a long time, people didn't know. Was it true? Was it not true? It turned out it was a claim. So claims do not always convince. So what do we need? What is really needed? Anytime there is a lie, the key thing is evidence. Evidence is what defeats the lie. And in this case, at the VA, um, the VA tracks everything you do on the computer. So you could go to the IT department and you could say, you know what, I want you to pull up my logins, any web websites that I visited. You could get a printout, I suppose. Now, wouldn't that be convincing? You make an appointment with a dermatology attending and you say, look, here is everything I've ever done on the computer. It's all from the IT department. It's not true. That would be convincing, wouldn't it? It's evidence. Evidence is what defeats lies. So uh, I think what we have in this whole situation here, yes, God has made claims like Jesus did. You know, the devil is a liar, the father of the lies. Okay, but ultimately what was needed to win the war was evidence. Jesus Christ is the evidence. He's our evidence about who God is. Hey, I'll give you even a more uh, diabolical uh, situation here. And I just try to wrap my mind about perhaps what could have happened. I, I wish we had a book in the Bible that described you know, all the issues in the war and so on. But I think we can make a parallel with the tree, that what the devil was up to at the tree is what he was up to from the very beginning. So imagine that uh, you see me looking rather dejected one day. And you come up and ask me, you know, what's going on? And um, reluctantly, I tell you, you know, I'm afraid the, the president of the university has been embezzling School of Medicine funds. And, you know, I'm very discouraged about this. And then I ask if you would join me in prayer for him. I know he's a good person. You know, he's responsible for all the food at the Bible study. And so, you know, would that get out? I mean, wouldn't that be perhaps a, a very calculated way of just planting a seed? Now, I love Dr. Hart, so obviously I can I can use this because um, he's, he's a friend. But what would be needed then from Dr. Hart to clear his reputation. Okay, it wouldn't be claimed just coming before you and saying I didn't do it or firing me or worse. None of that would, would solve the doubts. What would need be, would be evidence. So the evidence would be let's get the bank account and line by line we go through every single item and that's how you clear someone's name, evidence. So again, how did Jesus defeat the lies? It was evident. That's why the life of Jesus is so critical. We look at Jesus, that's what God is like, and that is the evidence for all of the accusations. So I think we can look at Jesus' life in that way. His first miracle. Okay, it's unusual. Turning water to wine is the first miracle. Well, how is that helpful as we try to consider what is true about God? So you know the story. Uh, two days later, there was a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They are out of wine. You must not tell me what to do, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. And many people have said, you know, we're probably not maybe getting the translation. Jesus can appear rather rude in some translations here. But, you know, it's not my time. But yet something about his body language, you know, must have suggested to his mother that he was going to do something. So Jesus' mother then told the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose, six stone water jars were there, each one large enough to hold between 20 and 30 gallons. These are big jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And you know what happened? Turned to wine, and everyone was amazed, you know, this is much better than what we were drinking before. And he performed this first miracle in Cana and Galilee, and there he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And... Uh, you know, to me, it's just interesting. His first miracle, um, what does it reveal? I mean, it reveals a God of abundance. Do you know how much this is? Somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. Here's a, a tank that holds 180 gallons. There's a fish tank that's about 150 gallons. You know, that's a lot of wine. What's the meaning? Okay, uh, again, if you know, the first accusation was God is kind of selfish. He's withholding. And here we have God just overabundant with that kind of a, of a quantity. Okay, so God is not, um, you know, he's, he's into abundance and uh, providing a, a quantity like that, again, would not make him to be a stingy, uh, selfish individual. I think we can look at all the miracles that way. Um, in Luke 13, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quiet, uh, quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her immediately, she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And I just find it interesting that Jesus brings Satan into this miracle. That this woman, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, be set free. Um, I, I think the miracles of Jesus, they kind of begin to set up um, a dividing line or a contrast between one who's a healer, Jesus is certainly a healer, and one who is a destroyer. Satan is the destroyer. So Jesus, in this case, places the blame on this woman's ailment, okay, on the adversary. So, um, you know, really, I think, at least certainly for most of my life, everything is... You know, when I thought about it in religious terms, it's just an axis between God and us, God and us. Everything that happens, it's either, you know, something I did messed up or God did something, and it, it's not a triangle. It just is a, there are two people involved. Um, I think there is great explanatory power if we make this into a triangle and we include a, a non-human reality to this. Um, remember last year we did the story of Daniel. Daniel prayed, nothing happened. Okay, and then 30 days later, the angel Gabriel comes and says, let me tell you what happened. And what happened, what he went on to describe was um, fighting the angel prince of Persia and all of these other angel princes and only Michael could come to my aid. And it just, it, it just uh, you're left with a strong impression. Daniel prayed and it kind of uh, just triggered this whole mini cosmic conflict with angels battling and the ultimate battle was over the mind of Cyrus and whether to let the Jews return. Okay, but if we're going to understand something as complex as prayer, 
if we just have two people involved, um, I don't think that really gets to the root of difficulties in understanding that. I think if we incorporate uh, a non-human reality, it has great explanatory power. And we'll have, we're going to spend some time talking about prayer, uh, which is, I think, uh, really important uh, understood in a cosmic conflict setting. Okay, so twice Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. Okay, I think we really miss something if we only incorporate God doing things and us humans doing things. And we never consider that there is a demonic undercurrent that is trying to continually stir things up. I'm always uncomfortable uh, when I hear a lot of talk about God being in control. Okay, because when we look at something like this, and say God is in control, well, I don't know. That doesn't look like in control to me. And when we have Satan as the prince of this world, and other verses, even after the cross, you know, Paul said, referred to Satan as the God of this age and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And John, again, even after the cross, said the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Uh, we need to conceive of our planet as having an adversary who is at work, and we need to try to understand why can't God do more um, and, and that's that's another important subject. But the point is, the devil is active and is influential. So again, when we consider all the worst things you can imagine, you know, the concentration camps, 9/11, starving children, people that go in and murder whole households, um, there is a demonic element, and we need to try to wrap our minds around uh, that the, the devil and demonic forces stir things up. And it's often hard to put our finger on that. That's why the Bible is so helpful with these stories where we can actually see how the devil was involved. So C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, the question is whether I believe in devils. I do. It seems to me to explain a good many facts. Okay, and I'd agree with that. It seems to me also to explain a good many facts. And if you haven't read his book, uh, Screwtape Letters, that is really an interesting um, book about the subject. So, uh, boy, I'm showing you some horrible pictures today, aren't I? Just realizing. Um, so here's what it seems to me like. Looking at things that happen on the news, looking at the horrible devastation on our planet, it seems to me that to deny the existence of the devil and demonic forces would be like you know, being in a concentration camp, being involved in the Holocaust, and denying the existence of Hitler. And denying that, you know, that uh, the rise of Hitler and what led to the, the Nazis and so on. It's just, you're missing the big picture. And I think in the same way, if we look at planet Earth and all of the suffering, and when you get into the third and fourth year, you know, you will, you will see some horrible things. Uh, we need to say that all the things that are happening on planet Earth, that there is another prince of this kingdom. All right, so uh, I just decided to include one verse. I said there are a lot of verses talking about Jesus coming to defeat the devil. Here's one of them. Jesus would say just before he died, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, here it is, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Okay, and I like, um, this could be translated certainly as cast out, but it can also be translated this way. Now is the critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be exposed. And I think Jesus came not only to reveal the truth about his character, truth about God's character, but he came to reveal and expose, and that's how you defeat a liar, um, to expose the devil in the process. Okay, so why did Jesus heal? 
Well, if we're allowed to use Isaiah 14 as referring to um, Satan, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining one, often translated O Lucifer. And this whole funeral passage ends with this description about Satan. You have destroyed your land and killed your people. I think Jesus is trying to make a very strong distinction. God is a healer, not a destroyer. Jesus revealed God to be a healer, and he put the blame for destruction on the devil. And again, if we want to go forward to Revelation, who is the destroyer? Okay, this is clearly referring to Satan in Revelation 9. They have a king ruling over them. Who is the angel in charge of the abyss? His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, the name is Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. So if we're ever talking about the destroyer, um, boy, I want to assign one person as a destroyer. If I'm giving a label to God, certainly based on the life of Jesus, uh, I'm going to call God a healer. Okay, very, very different um, uh, depiction there. So what about, uh, we read some of those quotes. God is accused of being unforgiving, severe. Um, You can't take the position that God is unforgiving if Jesus is the crystal clear reflection of who God is. We could list so many stories here. In Matthew 9, Jesus got into a boat, went back across the lake to his own town where some people brought him a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw how much faith they had, he said to the paralyzed man, Courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. The man hadn't even asked for forgiveness. They just saw him, Jesus just saw them carrying the man, and he right away forgives. Okay, no sinner's prayer, just he's just does it, forgives right away. Okay, God is not unforgiving in this story. Or the woman caught in adultery. She's not there asking for forgiveness. Okay, she's being accused. And you remember what Jesus did. He wrote with his finger in the dirt. And I like the tradition that he was writing the sins of the men who were there accusing. And it's, it's kind of an incredible way to do it, really, because how long do little words in the dust last? I mean, with that many people around, they're, they're gone in a few seconds. He even kind of seemed to not want to humiliate them too bad. Okay, but they all left. And he said to her, where did they go? Has anyone condemned you? And the woman answered, no one, sir. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go and don't do that anymore. Okay, so uh, remarkable again, just caught in the act of something like that. And Jesus' words to her um, are, I do not condemn you. God is not unforgiving as seen in the life of Jesus. What about this one that we read in the quote earlier? Is God severe, one who delights in the sufferings of his creatures? Again, obviously, looking at Jesus, we cannot take that position. And I read last time, I I love this uh, miracle in Mark 1, the way it's described, a man with leprosy who said, if you want to, you can make me clean. And this is the face I would like to, if we could somehow paint a picture of God in the face of any suffering. Okay, this is it. Jesus was filled with pity. I think that's the... That's the heart of God towards any suffering on our planet, filled with pity. And he reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered, be clean. See, what I think we see in the life of Jesus, it's just a a magical three and a half years where we see what God's kingdom looks like. God forgives, God heals. Um, It's it's three and a half years where you want to know what the king is like, what the kingdom is like, that's it. Okay, and why, why is it like that more often? Well, you know what, we, we still often don't trust God and uh, we're still disconnected um, from him. And so, but I, but I think 
you know, this can happen again. I think it, it will happen again. How about another story? Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town named Nain, accompanied by his disciples and a large crowd. Just as he arrived at the gate of the town, a funeral procession was coming out. The dead man was the only son of a woman who was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart again was filled with pity for her, and he said to her, don't cry, and he resurrected the young man. And I find it interesting to, to list how many miracles of Jesus involved the other individual not even aware of Jesus, not even coming and asking to be healed, but Jesus recognizing, Jesus seeing the suffering, and him being the one to go out and do something about it. Okay, So Jesus saw the funeral. He went over and he healed the young man. So again, when God's kingdom was here, everyone gets healed. Okay, I think we could also make a point um, in this, um, what we're talking about, lies versus truth, significant the miracles that Jesus didn't perform. Okay, and on this one story, the Samaritans, um, who you know always had something against the Jews and vice versa, they learned that his destination was Jerusalem, and so they refused hospitality. When the disciples, James and John, learned of it, they said, Master, do you want us to call a bolt of lightning down out of the sky and incinerate them? Okay, I'm quoting the message paraphrase here. But they wanted to call fire down to destroy these people for being so ungrateful um, towards Jesus and his disciples. And again, the, the significance here of Jesus, he turned and rebuked and severely censured. I'm using the amplified version here so I can stretch this out. But he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know of what sort of spirit you are. Now, we need to talk about the Old Testament and some of those stories. And, and we spent a long time talking about those. But at least, at the least, could we say that Jesus came to reveal the ideal. He never killed anyone. He never called down fire from heaven. Um, you know, he cleansed the temple, yes, but as some people have said, you know, he struck the furniture, not the people, when he did that. So, uh, that what he didn't do is significant as well. So, in this context, I think this is our mission, and I think it applies very well to uh, medical students, to physicians, that the Lord, remember he chose 72, he sent them out two by two to go ahead of him to every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, there is a large harvest, but few workers to gather it in. Pray to the owner of the harvest that he will send out workers to gather in his harvest. Go, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Whenever you go into a town and are made welcome, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in that town and say to the people there, the kingdom of God has come near to me. We are to try to bring the same kingdom that we see Jesus bringing. And I like that healing is involved in this. So, Remember the 72, they had great success. They came back in great joy. Lord, they said, even the demons obeyed us when we gave them a command in your name. And Jesus answered them, and I find this interesting. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Um, now, um, I think if we could use Daniel and some other verses, uh, what I would like to say, what really happened here, I don't think he physically saw Satan moving from one address to another. But... This falling from heaven, um, I think, is a fall of influence. It's really falling from our minds. Okay, And so as the 72 went out, the first commissions, going out to give the good news, healing, and Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he gave them authority so that you can walk on snakes. Now, does that mean we're supposed to literally walk on snakes and scorpions, handle snakes and scorpions? 
isn't it significant, the, uh, the creatures that he chose here? Snakes. I mean, again, who's always a snake in the Bible? He can walk on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Oh, there's the enemy, if we had any doubt. And nothing will hurt you. So I think, uh, you know, especially in a medical situation where you were there, you're helping, you're healing, uh, you're treating patients who are suffering, um, if at the same time you're revealing good things about God, um, I think that it has a very, very powerful um, effect. So that is our mission. And I think perhaps if we could just say, what is our message? Well, I should just make the claim for myself. But what is the message? We could condense it down to one verse. Jesus said so many times in John, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And uh, I think that's when people get that message. Trust is restored in God again. Relationship is restored. And, and good things begin to happen. And I like uh, George MacDonald here saying, I and the Father are one. This verse is the center truth of the universe. The center truth of the universe. Okay, so one last quote. And see if you agree with this. Had God the Father come to our world and dwelt among us, humbling himself, and we're talking about the Father, veiling his glory, that humanity might look upon him, the history that we have of the life of Christ would not have been changed. In every act of Jesus, in every lesson of his instruction, we are to see and hear and recognize God. In sight, in hearing, in effect, it is the voice and movements of the Father. So again, I think uh, this is the greatest truth to try to wrap our minds around, and I think it has the greatest effect on us and the greatest effect on those around us. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just pray that for each person here that we would better understand uh, what it means that you and the Father are one, uh, help us as we grapple with what you are like, as we think about difficult stories, misconceptions that we all have about you. Help us to be moving closer to a picture of God that is more like Jesus. Amen.